Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. We are up to episode 83. It's very exciting. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Donnie Stedman, my guest for this episode. But first I want to tell you that I was a guest on a show called Freaks Like Me. Artist Daphne Willis, who's an exceptional artist, performing songwriter. Um, She has a YouTube channel and a YouTube show called Freaks Like Me, as I said, and she had me on episode six. I'd love for you to see it. So I posted it on my SusanRuth.com website. Um, It's right there on that first page. You can click on the link and watch that Freaks Like Me episode. It's episode six. Um, So that was really cool of Daphne and she's gonna be on an upcoming episode of Hey Human. So that's pretty cool. uh, I want to remind everybody, anyone in New York, um, I'll be performing uh, with some friends. We're going to do in the round style, which is a Nashville style of performing. It means we're all up on the stage at the same time and we just take turns going down the line doing songs and come back around and we go again and come back around. And it's going to be me and uh, Nikki Fernandez, Bryn Black, and then we just added um, a new person and it is Robinson Treacher. Um, so it's going to be a really fun show. I hope you, you New Yorkers and people in the vicinity uh, come out to that. Say hi, please, if you do. I'm also going to be up at Union College. I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to be up at Union College doing live podcast. Um, live in, in that it's going to be recorded live. Um, and then I will post it later on in the month. So that's exciting. Um, I have a ton of backlog episodes, so many now, because I had that anxiety when I first started the podcast. I thought, oh my gosh, what if nobody wants to talk to me? I don't know if all podcasters have that feeling, but I certainly did. And so I, I kind of, you know, doubled down. I did tons of interviews, and so I have this, this pile now. So I have enough where I can start doing twice a week. Um, so they'll start coming out. I think I'm going to do Monday and Thursday. And same, same bat time, they'll come out in the early morning. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited about that. And um, I got uh, such great people coming up. I'm gonna do some really cool interviews in New York that I'm very excited about when I'm there. Um, lots going on. A little reminder about the Amazon affiliate program. It's on heyhumanpodcast.com's website. There's an Amazon banner, you click on the banner. It takes you to Amazon, you shop like normal, and you help support Hey Human, which is awesome. There's also a support Hey Human button on the website, on the Hey Human podcast website as well. Um, And any support is greatly appreciated. It helps keep the program going. So thanks for that. Dr. Donnie Stedman is on this episode 83. And shout out to her son, Ryan, who convinced her to do a podcast because she was like, podcast? I don't know. And he said, do it, mom. And she told me that he championed for it. So thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Dr. Stedman is, um, she's at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, She runs the Forensic Anthropology Center. It actually was the first of its kind. And now there are a handful all around the world. Not only is Dr. Stedman the director of the center, but she's also a professor of anthropology. She's a skeletal biologist, to be specific, a bioarchaeologist. She's also an author and a human rights investigator. She wrote a book called Hard Evidence, Case Studies in Forensic Anthropology. 
Okay, so let's talk a second about donating your body to the Forensic Anthropology Center at UT Knox. The forms to do so, in fact, are on Hey Human Podcast's links page, so it makes it easy for you if you're considering doing this. Um, at the facility that Dr. Studman runs, uh, what happens is the bodies are placed in their environments and forensic scientists can see how the bodies break down and learn a lot about all sorts of things that way. Um, What's cool is uh, there's also a bone room uh, at UT Knoxville. And although I did not get to go around the facility where the bodies were, um, Dr. Stedman brought me into the bone room. And it was a very beautiful and humbling experience. So this room, there are all these, um, it's like a giant library of sorts with these big cranks and then the door the the walls sort of move around and um and there are rows and rows and rows and rows of these brown cardboard boxes and they're all the same length they're all the same color and on the side of the box it says you know male or female date of birth age when the person passed away and dr stedman took a box out for me and we opened the box up and there it was, this woman, happened to be a woman, a 68-year-old woman. Um, it was her skull and her teeth and her spine, uh, her entire body in this box. And there were just rows and rows and rows and rows of these boxes. And I looked at Dr. Stedman, and I was like, wow, this is the great equalizer, is it not? You can't tell what race a person is when they are bones. You don't, I mean, I guess you can if you're a forensic doctor, you can because you know what to look for. And there are certain maybe uh, in women, of course, the hip bones are wider and that kind of thing. But you don't, it's a human being when you get to be to the point where you're in a cardboard box. As we get to the point where we are in the ground or ashes or whatever, you know, we choose to do when we die. It was so moving. It's, it's hard to explain all the feelings that I was feeling, but I mean, mostly it was like, yes, yes. I wish everyone on the planet could see this room and look at these bones. And I mean, of course, you know, Dr. Simmons, she's like, oh, look, this woman happened to have arthritis because you see like the bone is calcified on her spine and it kind of shoots out a little bit. And that means she was, you know, the bone was trying to grow more bone and, I get all the sciencey stuff, and and but I think there there's this great reverence in that room too, as there is in fact I think in that whole facility, the honor that they give to the people that say yes in my death, I want to help humanity understand itself. So beautiful, and such a wonderful experience. I can't believe that I got to to do that. Um, so. Big thanks to Dr. Stedman. Uh, big thanks again to Ryan. And um, I hope you all enjoy this episode. It really it meant a lot for me to go there and, and to experience this as a human being. And it means a lot for me to have you all listen to it. Um, as I say here and there on this series of shows, we're all in this together. We all end up in the same place. We all come from the same place. And the bits in between are crazy. Life is a roller coaster of emotion and experience. 
and love and hate and fear and doubt and all the things. So um, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, we're just a box of bones and it's really meaningful and impactful to me. And I hope this episode is for you. And thank you always. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating and reviewing Hey Human and for spreading the word. I can't do this without you. And I appreciate it. All right, here we go. Hello, Dr. Donnie Studman. Thank you for being on Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Yes, so you are um, a doctor of forensic anthropology, is that correct? Just anthropology. Just anthropology. Right, anthropology. And then within anthropology, you can specialize in different areas. Okay, all right. And your specialty is? My specialty is skeletal biology. Oh, interesting. And so it's a it's a component of biological anthropology. Mm-hmm. So in anthropology, there's typically four main subfields: biological anthropology, which is what I am, mm-hmm. uh, archaeology, looking at material culture remains from the past, uh, cultural anthropology, doing ethnography and understanding current cultures, mm-hmm. and linguistics, which is looking at past and current languages and how they change over time. So biological anthropology looks like it at the kind of the intersection between culture and biology mm. that makes us what we are, you know, from our soft tissues to our hard tissues to understanding violence in all contexts, things like that. Okay, all right. interesting. And you're here at, no- I'm, I came to Knoxville. Yes. To the university here, um, which is grand. It's, it's, I was saying as I came in, it's lovely. It reminds me of being back in college, which... It's one of my favorite things in the whole world is learning. So the University of Tennessee is really just an awesome environment it's here. here. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's vibrant at yeah. all times. Everybody is really committed to being here, students and faculty and yeah. administration alike. So it's really a it's wonderful an exciting place. culture. That's it good. is. So the reason why I reached out to you was because the facility that is here, mm-hmm. which is where you do forensic research. Um, Am I, is that correct? Correct. That's, that's what you would call that, forensic research? Mm-hmm. So people donate their bodies to science or to you specifically? Well, not you, but to the, mm-hmm. the university specifically, and then what happens? Right. So we do have a body donation program mm-hmm. where people, while they're living, can fill out a body donation packet mm-hmm. that's available online on our website. And it includes their medical history, their basic demography, their eye color, hair color, where they've lived in their past, where their parents are from, all of these sorts of things that help us uh, be able to do a variety of different types of research Mm -hmm. related not just to the decomposition research that we do at the facility, but also the skeletal research that we do after decomposition is completed. So unlike medical schools, Um, Here at the Forensic Anthropology Center, we retain the skeletons. Mm -hmm. So medical schools will often only keep the bodies that are uh, donated to them for six months or a year. They do do the dissections in the anatomy lab or whatever um, research labs that they have. Mm -hmm. And then the remains are typically cremated and given back to the families. At the Forensic Anthropology Center, We say that there is really no end to the gift of body donation because after the decomposition research is completed at the facility, we clean the skeletons and accession them into the vast donated skeletal collection. And there we have researchers come from all over the world to study the skeletons. And 
produce new methods on how to estimate age or sex from the skeleton, mm. to look at contemporary diseases in the skeleton and how we might identify those in forensic settings. So it's another way besides the decomposition research to do research that directly benefits forensic science. So let's say I come upon bones that um, have a lot of stress fractures. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that maybe the person was obese in life? Or, I mean, is that what you're talking about? Like you look at the bones and you go, oh, okay, because A, B, and C. Right. Sometimes we can kind of reconstruct lifestyle, and certainly in forensic cases when we have an unknown person, mm -hmm. we want to try to interpret as much as we can from the skeleton, but stay scientifically bounded, mm -hmm. right? And that's where the research with the skeletal collection is so important, is because we know what occupations our donors had, what habitual oh, activities they had. So maybe in the case you described, the person had been a runner. Mm -hmm. you know, a long-distance runner for a good part of their life. They may have built up some stress fractures mm -hmm. or something like that that we might be able to see in the skeleton. Right now, I would say we don't have the science to back that up. Okay. But because we have the, the documented skeletal collection, we could do research to see, okay, these are the individuals who are runners. What can we see in their skeleton that might give us some clues that that was their habitual activity. Do you have a lot of, um, say, FBI people coming in looking at, I mean, I would imagine that that helps. Yes, we do research uh, with and for um, other agencies, such as the FBI, such as the Department of Defense, different mm -hmm. areas of the Department mm -hmm. of Defense. Um, some uh, laboratories, private laboratories, as well as federal laboratories, work with us on different projects that they have an interest in that we have a unique way of contributing to. Mm -hmm. So yes, we do research with a number of different external partners. I saw one of your interviews online and you were discussing mass graves. Yes. How, explain how the science leads to being able to help for determining that. Sure. You had said something in the interview about um, it keeps people from having to go mm. to be a part of it, um, which I imagine ha would involve a lot of stress and, and, right. and danger. I mean, I think you might be referring to the, the research that we've been doing on the um, remote sensing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's by one of my colleagues, Amy Mundorf. She's been heading up that project. And as somebody who does forensic human rights investigations myself, where I'm going overseas and I'm looking for the mass graves and, mm -hmm. and exhuming them and trying to find out who was killed, who's in the graves, how they were killed, and who mm -hmm. might be responsible. This research is really important because the point is that if we can figure out what sorts of new technologies in remote sensing, whether they be sensing that you can use on the ground or sensing that you can use on airplanes or satellites or somewhere in between, um, if we can see which particular techniques are better at picking up different lifespans of the grave, mm -hmm. then I can do a lot of research on searching for graves here in my office at UT rather than spending so much time on the ground in potentially a conflict-ridden situation. So how, how it keeps us safer. Yeah, of course. How, how would one make it that determination from the air, from an airplane? Is it just like what plants are growing or? It could be the plants, it could be the amount of chlorophyll in the plants, the type of plants. We also can see some changes in the elevation mm -hmm. on top of the grave over time. Mm -hmm. So just like, say, if you plant a tree mm -hmm. out in your yard, you dig a hole, okay? And when you look at the dirt that you've dug up, it's all mixed together now, right? But if you look in 
the profile of the hole that you dug, you might be able to see some distinct lines we call strata, different mm -hmm. soil layers. Now, when you go, when you plant your tree and you put the dirt back on it, you always end up with more dirt than what you started with. Mm -hmm. So you end up with this mound, right? But over time, that mound uh, compresses and becomes continuous with the, with the elevation of the soil around it, right? And so, and sometimes then it'll even sink a little bit further, and, and certainly in graves we do see that, is it'll actually sink below the outline of the grave. Interesting. And so there's technology that allows us to look not only at the plant physiology and growth, but also the elevation changes right. in the actual grave soil over time. Like bass boats, there are technology that sees where the, or any kind of boat that sees where the depth is. Right, that's using sonar. Ours are usually, usually using light, light technology. Oh, and it bounces back mm -hmm. up and tells exactly. you. Exactly. Oh, interesting. Exactly. So the research that uh, Dr. Mundorf and her group are doing is extremely useful for those of us who, who go out and do this work. How did you come to be interested in, in that particular, I mean, obviously there is a lot of ethnic cleansing, unfortunately, in the world. I don't know why people are so surprised when they, when they mm. hear about that, it's like human beings behaving this way. Um, what drew you to that particularly? To, to investigating human rights? Yeah. Yes. So when I was in graduate school, I was at University of Chicago, which is very theoretical. Um, and Chicago. I was, are you? I, lo I just love that city. Oh, I do too. It's fan. probably my favorite yeah, American city. me too. Um, and I was a little bit restless mm -hmm. about not really feeling like I knew what I wanted to do with anthropology. And so one of the professors there was involved in human rights and physicians for human rights. And so he was working with a new team that had just developed in Argentina called the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team. Mm -hmm. And he thought it would be worthwhile for me to go down there and, and teach them new methods of the age that have been coming out in the late 80s. And so um, I said, okay. You know, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And the fact that I was teaching them anything is just laughable because the flow of information and the amount that I learned from that team and what they do uh, was life-changing for me. And uh, what they were doing is looking at for the disappeared in Argentina from the 1976 and 1983 Dirty War, where the government of Argentina, the junta military, was essentially going through and disappearing all political dissidents. Uh, they were torturing them, putting them in secret detention centers, and then often killing them. And the Argentine Forensic Anthropology team, uh, they developed, uh, with the help of Clyde Snow, an American forensic anthropologist, and a number of other researchers from around the world, uh, to do the exhumations, to identify people, to give the remains back to the family, but also have a written document, an objective record of what happened to these people where they ended up, their trips through the secret detention centers, how they ended up in a particular mass grave, and hence who might be responsible within the military. And for a while, there, were, there was an amnesty and they weren't doing any um, prosecutions or anything like that, but the team kept working. And now Without there's being prosecutions again. <laughs> there were issues. Yeah, there were issues. It was, it was a dangerous time. Absolutely. And, but they worked directly with the families and they listened to their stories and the families felt connected to the process for the first time sure. after being ignored to and, and ignored and lied to by the government. 
um, and told the story that mattered to the people who mattered in, in order to really help get them the remains back. And, and getting involved in that social justice aspect of it, um, as well as the science of the identifications and the exhumations, uh, really inspired me. And uh, I felt that this is one way that anthropology could really help make a difference. There's many ways, but this is one way. And so since then I've worked in uh, Cyprus and Spain, I'm currently working in Uganda, and all of these contexts are very different. Um, the science is the same, but the, the political process and the social processes and the, and the problems that you're tackling are all different and uh, pulls on different skill sets and, and mm -hmm. expertise. And it's all a team environment, and that's the other thing I really enjoy working in is not as an individual, but as part of a, a integrated, dedicated team that's, that's always extremely dynamic and exciting to that's me. That's the best part of science. It absolutely I is. I think, personally. Not absolutely that I'm a scientist, is. but just from my understanding of it. I think people always think of a scientist as, you know, working in the dark in their lab late at night, you know, and coming up on their own with that great big discovery. And I think sometimes that happens. Um, but I think most of the time, good science is collaborative. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you and me talking about what our experiences are in this particular field and coming up with shared questions and, and figuring out how to answer those questions and then bringing in the other right people to, to move us forward. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's how good science also gets done. So if you come upon a mass grave, let's say Rwanda or uh, Auschwitz or you know wherever it is, how in the world would all those people that are you know put together in humongous piles, how do you determine Who's who at Who's that who? point? I mean, that's got to be pandemonium. <laughs> well, that's the that's where good archaeology comes in, mm. is to make sure that we can make sense out of the chaos that that happened, right? But what we're trying to do is demonstrate how this grave was was not just put together. Um, in terms of you know the people who were placed into the grave, but also how it was constructed and all. And so, what we want to do is have a systematic um, excavation strategy mm -hmm. to to make sense out of the chaos of that. And it is chaotic. What happened to these people was often chaotic. Sometimes there's a plan, and we can see that as well. I've I've seen some graves like that, but most of the time it's chaos. And um, so the excavation techniques are everything, where you go down by layers or you take particular sections and you start to work, you know, out Strata. to in yeah. and, <laughs> and, and have a very secure strategy for what you're doing. And then making sure as you're identifying, you know, where the individuals are, making sure that uh, you keep all of the bones associated with each single mm. individual. Because what can happen is if you and I, let's pretend we're about the same age, we're uh, approximately the same height, we're the same sex, um, but let's say you broke your arm when you were younger, but I didn't. Well, if I make a mistake and I put your arm with, with my body, then that's two identifications we're pro probably not going to make because I can see the callus, the healed fracture in your arm, but if I'm putting it with somebody else, then we're probably not going to identify either person. 
So the excavation is really, really important in making sure that we get all the information we can from the grave and also making sure that we get the right people, all the bones of the right people out of the grave so that they can be analyzed properly. Do you do this a lot with like the Jane and John Doe's and crime? That I mean, because I know that some bodies are discovered years and years and years later. Uh, how long does it take for a body to decompose completely, or does it ever? For some crime scenes are very, very old, right? There could be decades, could be 30, 30, 40, 50, whatever it is. And when it's a singular person, what is, what's the decomposition rate? What, how do you go about that? And is that even more complicated when there's just one? At least when you have a mass grave, there's, you, you know they probably come from a community or you know there are hopefully records of those people at some, somewhere, somehow. Does that make sense? Am I it asking does. that question well? It does. Not. <laughs> I understand what you're questions. asking. I will say that in many of the mass graves, there are no documentation oh, really? of the people, especially in the areas of the world where this is occurring. That's There's a good point, not yes. medical history. There's right. not dental history. We're talking you know, villages and things. Yeah. Yes, you're talking about people who have had no access right. to these sorts of things, and then they're being massacred. And so, typically, the main way that we have to identify individuals in those types of scenarios is with DNA. Mm. So, but answering your question about, um, you know, more forensic cases, what we're used to seeing here in, in America, uh, yes, we, we are involved in forensic cases. Um, and we do help law enforcement and, and medical examiners with forensic cases. Um, and we go out with law enforcement and help and do the search and recovery. Mm. Uh, so we will use some of the same um, visual signals that I just told you about related to mass graves, about the different plants, about the different elevations of the soil. Uh, we'll use that to help look for clandestine graves here in the U.S. as well. And uh, we can use other technologies like ground penetrating radar to help us find graves. Now in terms of decomposition time, uh, when a body is buried, it's going to decompose slower in general than a body that's laid on the surface because part of the driving force behind decomposition is temperature. And so high temperatures is faster decomposition because you have the insects, you have the internal bacteria that are active, and the body tends to decompose fairly quickly. When you have a burial situation, you're essentially removing those main elements of decomposition. You're making a cooler environment. You're essentially, by placing the body underground, removing most of the insects uh, from the equation. And so decomposition does occur, but it occurs at a slower rate. And obviously the deeper that is, it may occur slower. The other issue is water. So if you have groundwater, that may speed up the rate of decomposition. Unfortunately, after 35 years of research here at the Forensic Anthropology Center, what we can always say is it's context dependent. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, how does this work? Does it, has it <coughs> excuse me, changed how you see humanity? How do you come upon a mass grave and not just have your world tilted upside down? I know you're a scientist, so always you face things, facts, science, it's that part of your brain, but... Yeah. Well, keep in mind that we do often years of historical research before we ever get to a gravesite or a purported gravesite. 
So we're well informed about the history of what might have happened here, the whole history of the problem that created the conflict that then created the mass graves. Um, so we have a pretty good sense of whether it's just or not, the different factors that came into creating the conflict that made the mass grave. That's um, a funny word, just, isn't it? Hmm? <laughs> Whether it's just or not, that's, yeah. that's such that talk about a loaded word. Right, yeah. exactly. But again, it's context-driven. So mm-hmm. some wars we might see as quite just. Other wars we, th- we see as there, there's no, no justification for it as all, at all. And I mean us as not just Western community, but as even scientists, you know, mm-hmm. or individuals. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think... Dealing with the mass graves, yes, it can be extremely difficult, uh, but we have a skill set that can help people. We can help the families find out what happened. Mm. And so I think that we get put into the frame of mind of this is the job that we need to do to uncover these um, remains, help identify them, help tell what happened to them. We're very fortunate to have that skill set. And actually it's an honor to be able to do this and hopefully to help families and hopefully to allow whatever justice process is going on in that particular country to be able to work. Mm -hmm. But how does that make you, I mean that's the thing, it's that a lot of the research I do, the reason why I started Hate Human was because Sometimes it's hard to look at humanity and not go, really? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're, I, I feel like sometimes I'm hanging on by a thread, and uh, and I don't want to lose hope in right. humanity. And knowing that things like this exist in the world, or even just how we treat our fellow person right. on a day-to-day basis, right. kindness versus being awful. Right. Um, I don't know. It just I, I think of the philosophy of it, too, mm-hmm. not just the science, which is fascinating, but... Well, the last thing I want to intimate is that we are hardened to it yeah. because we're not. I think the people who do this, and I, and I mean this in forensic science all over, anybody who is dealing with murders, whether it's local or whether it's a mass murder in another country, is doing it because they have a heightened sense of humanity. Yes. I would argue that. I, oh, I believe that, for um, sure. That they have a heightened sense of justice and injustice. Yeah. Um, and a, a, an extreme desire to want to help in whatever way that they have the skill set to do so. To right the wrongs. To right the wrongs. That said, I think we also internalize that very deeply. Yeah. And it does come out in in strange ways and in very individual ways. Um, So it might come out as a form of PTSD, Mm. post-traumatic stress Mm. disorder or syndrome now, I think they're calling it. Mm. But um, where essentially you have either witnessed or been through a trauma or reconstructed a trauma in our case and it affects you very deeply and it affects you in ways that um, may not make any sense of not sleeping correct sure. you know correctly or not wanting to sleep in a comfortable way sometimes it manifests for me as just not wanting to be comfortable at all um, when I'm doing these things uh, and I can't tell you the reason why that all of a sudden I don't feel like I should be sleeping on a bed or or sleeping at all, but something about the trauma that the families are telling me about, that I'm seeing, uh, just manifests in ways that are 
make no sense. I would argue that are very that's strange. empathic. That's an empathy it of, is. of, yeah. It is. And Which is quite noble, really. I mean, you know, it's, the work you do is, I mean, again, I keep saying fascinating. It is, it's fascinating. And, and it's wonderful that it's out there, but it, I can also imagine it's pretty traumatizing too, that you would have to have that logical brain, that science brain, so you don't go crazy. Right, but know? that turns off quickly. Yeah, right? and then you're left, sure. And then you're left which with is, yourself and, and surgeons, what you're dealing with. Yeah, and sure. surgeons do surgery or, you know, people who are pediatric people, how do they deal with that every day? I mean, it's right. just... or ER doctors, yes. where they're in the moment of trauma and yeah. life and death, and then you know, kind of freak out afterwards. Yeah. It's kind of like that, where yeah. you do the job, and then, and you, then you freak out later, and something. then you go freak out later, <laughs> or and, run 20 miles or whatever. and try and find healthy ways of getting sure. rid of that stress or emotion or what have you, and sometimes it takes some training or hit and miss to figure out what's healthy and what's not in terms of dealing with this, but, you know, the World Trade Center is another example of, you know, those of us who work there. Um, did you? As, yeah, I did. Okay. I did. Um, we all, what is this now, 16 years later? Just now, just this month? Um, still talk about it and, and have ways of dealing with that scope of inhumanity, if you will, mm. uh, where this was something that, you know, so regrettable that it happened and, and the loss of life and the scale of it and the families who are still waiting, you know, for for loved ones to be returned and and the efforts that New York City and the federal government are making to to keep trying to return the remains to families even now 16 years later shows how important it is you know for scientists for you know our particular culture to have those answers and and to let the families know what happened mm-hmm. and uh, so I think kind of maybe the under underlying theme that you're seeing in all of this is really a dedication to the families and and their plight of not knowing I think is what drives for me a lot of this and justice I suppose and justice although as an anthropologist we realize quickly in working with other countries that justice is not always what we think of as justice we think of justice as very punitive right Right. we want to catch the bad guys and put them in jail Um, in other cultures it's not that way at all um, there's other cultural mechanisms that that mediate justice. For example, so for instance, in Uganda, where we're working now, we're doing we're asking people uh, who are affected by the um, the war between the LRA and the government of Uganda in in the north of Uganda about the mass graves that they know exist and where they are and how they feel about it, but also. If they want them excavated, you know, why? What is the motivation? And what we're finding is justice is not a, a big motivation. The motivation more is spiritual, that they believe that the spirits of the dead are angry because they aren't buried properly, that mm. not just that they were killed, but that they weren't cared for properly after, that they, after they were killed. And these spirits have kind of a living agency mm-hmm. among the people around them. Um, hauntings, making children sick, killing the crops, making the animals sick, things like that. And so what we want to do is if we're going to do exhumations and help identify people, we want to make sure that that process doesn't cause more psychosocial harm than good Mm -hmm. to this particular community. 
and we're bringing in our biases of social justice as, you know, well, you have to prosecute those, you know, who are responsible. And, and they have their own cultural rituals, you know, for um, children who were kidnapped by Coney and the LRA and, and made to kill other people. They escape, sometimes after many years, and come back and they go through a cultural ritual to try to integrate them back into the community even though that they, they have taken lives. Um, and sending them to jail is really not even on their radar. And so we need to be aware of that, that mm -hmm. that is uh, the way that this culture sees things and the reasons why they might want to exhume a mass grave is, is very different than perhaps what we are seeing in Spain or Cyprus or Argentina or other places. See, now I can't, in terms of justice, I can't imagine getting a child back who was kidnapped, brainwashed, forced to kill, and then somehow escapes, comes back to his or her family, mostly his, because the women are dead, mostly, right? Well, the women come back with children. So oh, they were yeah, they're mass they were sex, yeah. They were sex, sex slaves. slaves. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for the boys that committed crime, that committed murders uh, on behalf of Coney here, um, I can't imagine putting those children, or even if they're young adults at that point, in jail. I mean, like, that's like a whole other level of intricate stuff. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But in other cultures, they might not see it that way. Um, they might where, just put them to death, you mean? Or? Well, well, they're soldiers, right? Mm. Even they're if they soldiers. were brainwashed, and so kidnapped. And in other places, you know, the accountability is from the top all the way down. If if they're soldiers that, that do that yeah. make an atrocity. It's complicated. It's extremely complicated. Yeah. And so understanding where we're working and um, the what's important about these atrocities to the people who mm -hmm. are directly affected by it um, is an important, not just first step, but probably the most major step of what we do. And, and then deciding maybe it's not correct. Maybe it's not the right thing to do to do these exhumations. It might not be the appropriate time or, or um, just the appropriate thing for this particular community, and we have to listen to that. I think that's such a valid point, the idea that um, we as Americans, you know, we have our own set of rules, and to go somewhere else and suddenly be... Eh, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy always comes yes. to mind. Yeah. Which is, if y'all haven't... Those out there listening, if you haven't it's seen this movie... It's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. But I think of that as we can't just insert ourselves into some other world. Mm -hmm. It might as well be another world. Right. It might as well be on another planet, as far as they're concerned. So Maybe. Maybe. But... You know, what I, the, the concept that I always say is that just because we know where a mass grave is doesn't mean we have to dig it. Yeah. There might be political overtones that, that prevent it. There might be family reservations about sure. it. And I'm not talking about just in Africa, but anywhere. Sure. These, these mass graves are always contested, even by families. So um, it's always very interesting to understand all of the different perspectives of the communities, of the family, certainly of the politics. Mm -hmm. The politics are the most predictable of all of it. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be people that say, yes, we absolutely must uh, investigate this. And then, of course, there's people usually related to the perpetrators or are the perpetrators that say, no, no, we need to you know, let, the, let the past stay in the past and, and move on from here. 
So this kind of um, arc of forgetting um, and, and then everything in between. But then the families put uh, entirely different layers on there. There may be some families, family members of disappeared people who are strongly against exhumations for all sorts of spiritual and political reasons. Interesting. And then, of course, families who have dreamt of nothing but in yeah. order to find their missing son or daughter or sure. husband or wife. And are perhaps haunted. And I think <laughs> all of these different voices need to be heard mm-hmm. and evaluated, you know, to see is this something that needs to be well, done that must right have now. a whole other level of complication if you have half the people say no and the other half say yes. And, then and that's often the way it is. Yeah. And then the communities need to decide, is this something that they want to go forward with? Sure. And again, I'm taking this at not just in Africa. This is happening. These conversations are happening all over the world. How many, uh, how many of these mass graves have you worked on? Oh, I don't know the number. But it's a lot. And I've worked in several different countries. Yeah. yeah. So let's switch gears for a second. Um, the, the facility here. So... I fill out the paperwork, I submit it. Um, I, do you turn down people ever? Not pre-donors, no. Okay. So the only reason that uh, we would perhaps not accept you as a pre-donor is if you have an infectious disease that we cannot accept by law. So tuberculosis, HIV, MRSA, um, VRE, if you have that as a living donor or at the time that you pass away, we won't be able Makes to sense. accept you. Sure. Um, one of the big myths that are out there about the facility is that there's a waiting list um, of people who, so that people can't sign up to be pre-donors because there's a waiting list. I have no idea how that, that fallacy got started, but it is just that. There's no waiting list. We, we um, take uh, requests and applications or, or the donor uh, packets every day from people who want to donate their body directly to us. Mm-hmm. So there's no waiting list. All right, you hear that, everyone? There's no waiting list. There's no waiting list. <laughs> um, this is maybe a peculiar question, but um, the concept of the soul versus the not-soul, do you find... And maybe you don't even have this, but I'm wondering if that research has been done. People who donate the bodies, they tend to be more atheists. They tend to be more religious. Or mm. We haven't looked at that yet. Mm, and that's actually curious. something I, I know. I think one of the studies that we want to do um, is on our living pre-donor population and look at the motivation for donation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I talk with a lot of our pre-donors quite often, and, and I get interesting stories about why they want to do that. Uh, one woman recently said that she's been a teacher all of her life, mm-hmm. and she wants to continue teaching even after she's gone. And she had thought about donating to a medical school, but and felt that that was very important, you know, to teach future doctors. But her, she was concerned about her family then having to deal with the remains afterwards. And so here she thought. You know, with the skeletal collection, she would be teaching forever, and and we think that's true. She will be teaching forever. Other people um, are a little bit more cavalier about it. It's like, ah, eh, I don't, you know, need my body after I'm done with it. You guys can do whatever you want with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we and we get everything in between. We get people who may have had some sort of 
history with violence mm. and feel very strongly about donating their bodies to maybe help prevent violence in the future or at least investigate violence and so they're coming from that angle mm -hmm. um, but these are all anecdotal so far and so I haven't developed a study yet but we're working on it yeah to to understand the mo the very different motivations and and backgrounds of people yeah, who, who donate their body I think it'll be quite I, I agree yeah I agree it'll shed some light I think on on how people think about death right now in our culture it's too. a complicated issue death especially is in America and really in is. Europe probably but especially in America we we are very uncomfortable with the concept of death mm. uh, to that point did you how long have you been here? This is my sixth year. Okay, so how long has the facility been here? Um, the first donor um, started in 1981. All right. So and about where you we're celebrating. Last year was our 30th and yeah. 35th anniversary. I'm doing the math right. Yeah, like I need the abacus. Out. I do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do um, do you have ever any? The community, I assume, is just now it's been here for so long, they're just used to it? Or The community is extremely supportive okay, good. of the Forensic Anthropology yeah. Center and the Anthropology Research Facility. They're very protective of it. We do a lot of outreach um, to school groups, to adult groups, to doing things like this where we talk about the research that we're doing, um, get people involved in it. So we're doing um, these... Uh, living subjects stu studies where the pre-donors can participate in studies with us while they're living. Mm. And we're doing that for biometrics right now where people are uh, coming in um, and we're scanning their irises, their faces, and their fingerprints. And that's being used by the Department of, Je um, the Department of Defense in various ways to essentially help uh, develop new technologies for sensing uh, biometrics uh, for after people ha are deceased mm. and uh, so that the military when they're on the ground in a conflict situation can do very rapid idea IDs not only of their fallen soldiers but perhaps enemy combatants as well and not be on the ground any longer than they need to be to get those identifications done. Mm -hmm. So um, the pre-donors who are participating in the study are very excited about it and being able to have this kind of direct uh, connection and, and directly help the the military in this regard mm -hmm. and so uh, that's one way uh, that we make sure that people know what we're doing why we're doing it understand the importance of the research that we do here uh, and it keeps them connected to us and protective of us we don't have people that try to get over the fence or anything like that at the mm -hmm. facility uh, most local people would never even consider such a thing because they believe in what we do, and they sure. wouldn't want to interfere with it. Or so, what do you? So somebody donates, they do the paperwork, they've passed away, the their corpus sent sent to you. What happens next? Do you put them out in in a field? Do you bury them? Do you you know where? Or is it all different kinds of things? Sure. Yeah. So once they pass away. Mm -hmm then if they are within 100 miles of Knoxville, then we will go and, and retrieve the donor mm -hmm. at no charge to the family. We don't charge anything for body donation. So um, if they're outside of 100 miles, 
then they need to arrange with the funeral home for transport to us. And we get people all the way from Washington State, from Canada, from all over the country, and they transport the bodies to us. Then um, we do basic intake procedures where we take samples of hair, of fingernails, of blood for all sorts of studies like isotope studies, genetic studies, things like that. Uh, we take photographs of tattoos, scars, because um, some cultural anthropologists are interested in um, the, the stories tattoos tell over time, things like that. So we try and anticipate as many types of research ideas that may be out there that we can ultimately help with. Then the donor is placed at the facility. And the placement depends on the placement type. You mentioned whether it was the individual is buried or on the surface or in, uh, in different scenarios. It depends on the type of research that we have going on at the time and also the um, courses that we have going on at the time. So the facility is committed to research and training. So the research is we're doing uh, numerous types of research on, on various aspects of decomposition and the technologies um, that I talked about before. The training is we train not only our students in these techniques and the decomposition process, but we also train law enforcement. Um, we're doing a training right now for the Kentucky Criminalist Association. I think I messed up that title, Kentucky Criminalist Academy. I can Google it. Okay. <laughs> I, always, I, think I, I always put links there's there. There's an A, and I can't remember what the A stands for. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. Um, the, uh, there are criminalists in the state of Kentucky, and they come here every year, every other year for training at the facility to make sure that their criminalists know how to uh, find and map uh, remains that are on the surface as well as burials. So therefore, we might have some remains placed out on the surface as well as remains and burials so that they can do their training. Mm -hmm. So um, each donor that comes in, we make a decision about where the needs are and, and that's the, if we can enroll that donor in a study or more than one study, then we will do that. Okay. I, in my brain, I, I have this vision of, you know, over here, there's someone on a pile of leaves. Over here, there's a sprinkler on someone, you know, just to <laughs> see, like, all the different... <laughs> well, you know, some individuals we have had, you know, clothed and some not. Mm -hmm. Some that are wrapped in various things, mm -hmm. you know, that, that bad guys wrap people in when they're mm -hmm. trying to, to clandestinely dispose of a body. And we try to, and we do studies to see, you know, are, do those wrappings and, and clothing or make a difference, you know, sure. compared to a, a control. So we do some of that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We don't have a sprinkler out there. <laughs> I have to admit, we don't have a sprinkler out just there. Just because of rain, and I, I suppose know, it's just a natural element. Exactly, happen, it's a natural outdoor laboratory to study human decomposition. So, and they're what all happens, happens over the world, right? Because you need different environments. They're not all over the world yet. Oh, okay, uh, but we are hoping that they will get that way. We are the first. Oh, okay. Here, that's exciting. Um, yes, the very first, and. Um, New facilities have opened up, um, a couple in Texas, one at Texas State and one at Sam Houston in Texas. Another one has opened up in Colorado. Uh, there is uh, one at Western Carolina University and in Southern Illinois, and then one is um, hoping to open up in Northern Michigan as well. Now, worldwide, um, Australia represents the rest of the world at this point. They have one facility. 
Um, the Netherlands just opened up a facility, but it's only for buried bodies, and they're doing chemical research. Mm. So it's not the same type of research that we do here. But it is important because it's the first time that Europe has allowed any research on human remains in an outdoor facility. So it's an important first step. Yeah. Why, why did it take them a minute? I think that the, there's been long-held laws there against it. And there's probably a little bit more of a, of a cultural pushback mm -hmm. to the idea mm -hmm. of it. Uh, but we've been very proactive in working with groups to um, help, you know, provide some information that might make the communities more comfortable. Sure. You mentioned that, and it makes absolute sense, the hazmat situation, if somebody has an infectious disease, then the protocol would be probably kind of expensive, right? It would be more expensive probably to deal with, but also the safety of the people that work there. But then how, how does one find out what happens when somebody who, who you know, is, has AIDS or is simply HIV positive or has um, MRSA or whatever it is and how they do it? Are they, do they have specialized labs that everything is quite locked down or something? I think that if you have those diseases, it probably isn't going to affect how you're decomposing. Okay, that was my and question. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't see, just intuitively, I don't see that those particular um, bacteria or viruses that we're talking about would have an impact on, on the decomposition process. So I don't think that scientifically we're losing anything, mm -hmm. but it, it is very much a protection. Um, for those of us who can get bloodborne pathogens. Absolutely. We take universal precautions, obviously, every time we're dealing with human remains, uh, but there are policies that we have to follow set by the university and set by the state that disallows us to mm -hmm. work with those <clears throat> remains if we know that those individuals have it. Sure. So we also do take uh, donors. We talked about the pre-donors, people who register with us, but we will have individuals who will call and say, you know, my dad just passed away. He always wanted to do, to donate his body to you, but he never did the paperwork. Is that still possible? And oftentimes we will say yes, that, that and, and go ahead and send them a family donation packet that they can fill out on behalf of the father and sign, and they can donate, the family can donate the body to us. Um, we might not always be able to take uh, non-pre-donors, uh, depending on uh, the research that we have going on and, and, and how many donors we have at the facility, but we try to. Yeah. Do you tend to get more elderly or all different ages? We get all different ages. We, we do have mostly an elderly uh, population, but a lot of people will pre-donate their bodies while they're very young. Mm -hmm. And um, hopefully we won't get those until they're very old. Is there a law about children? We don't allow children 18 and under. Now, the families can donate children, but obviously the children would have to have a family sure. member sign. But um, we do have families that will donate minors to us. Okay. Yes. Because I imagine that's important research, too. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, and it means a lot to the families to be able to contribute in that way mm -hmm. when they lose a child, which I can't even imagine. No, it would be horrifying. Yes. Are you going to leave your body? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, some of uh, the my colleagues here are pre-donors. I am not yet. 
And the reason why is I have two sons mm -hmm. who I don't think are old enough yet to decide whether they're comfortable with this or not. And oh, for me, I feel that they need to be comfortable with this decision for me. Um, and they're not, they're not old enough yet. And why is that? Why, why is it? I, I, I think that I can assume I know why, but I'm not yeah. going to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously they know what I do here, um, and they know about the facility and all of that, and they've seen me give talks and things like that. And so they're savvy enough to know what is done here. And I don't know how they would feel about me being here mm. after death. And if I ask them now, I, I know their answer would be, yuck you know because they're boys and they're that age everything is yuck yeah. and so um, I think it's important for me to make sure that they're okay with it yeah Dr. Simmons this has been fascinating and lovely um, thank you for your service oh and wow. for the work you do and it's an honor thank you sorry I get a little emotional with stuff like this because oh, wow. I think it's so important so well, Thank you. On behalf of all of the, the faculty and the students that work with us, I really want to say it's an honor to be able to do what we do and, and yeah. serve forensic science. And we're especially grateful for our, the people who donate their body to us because without them, we wouldn't have a program at all. We wouldn't have the scientific knowledge that we have. And so we're forever grateful to them. That's wonderful. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.